Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Morning, everybody. Um, I've never done this twice in a row before, never done a series, so uh, appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, Obviously, I'm not Daryl. My name's Luke, as Michael introduced. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not speaking on the woes of time today, um, but uh, certainly impacted by that, uh, especially with young kids. So um, I do thank you all for being here and uh, making it through the weather and whatnot. Um, It's certainly always a pleasure to get to speak on the wonderful uh, truths of God to a community of believers. So, And my hope today is that I don't preach myself, Uh, But Jesus Christ is Lord, and I as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those of you that weren't here, um, last week I discussed the implications of the resurrection. We briefly, briefly reviewed the evidence for three independent events, the empty tomb, the post resurrection appearances, and the subsequent launch of the Christian faith. From this, I concluded that the resurrection of Christ is indeed the most reasonable and plausible explanation of the evidence. However, I also clarified that because of the transcendent nature of the resurrection, because it's the genesis of the new creation, uh, it is Christ as a new Adam, it requires a new way of knowing. And a new epistemology was a fancy word I used. Um, And this new resurrected epistemology requires love. Today I'll build on these things, and I'll actually build on them next few weeks as well. Um, But because the resurrection is true, or if we believe that, and we are equipped with this new way of knowing, we must use this lens to look at everything else. The resurrection tells us how we got here. We know how the church came to exist, but why does it exist? Why are we here? How are we designed? What is our purpose? What is the ultimate meaning for the church? Until the church understands its meaning and its purpose, a reason for existing, it can't answer any other questions about itself. Things like, what do I do, or who we are, or where are we going? And so, in the most basic sense, meaning and purpose are the ultimate answer to the question, what am I looking for? Eight years prior to American Neil Armstrong becoming the first man to set foot on the moon, the Russians, or Soviets, actually, uh, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, became the first man put in space. Um, After his trip, Gagarin reported, I looked and I looked, but I do not see God. Um, And this is actually a Soviet propaganda poster that they printed, and I'm told that says, uh, there is no God in Russian. A man writing at the time from England penned an article titled, The Seeing Eye. In response to the Soviet's uh, proclamation that God was nowhere to be found in space. And here's what he said. The Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space, though, is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. If God does exist, 
He is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as an object in the universe is related to another object. Space travel really has nothing to do with the matter. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But send up a, space in a, send up a saint in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Just like Gagarin, we all are looking for evidence of God, that grand and ultimate explanation, what we sometimes call meaning or purpose. We've been doing this since the beginning of time. Mankind's been searching for a sufficient explanation for why we are here. Something that will bring fulfillment of our desire for something more, um, something to explain perhaps the inexplicable. But as that author in England, C.S. Lewis, says, much depends on the seeing eye. What we are looking for, where we are looking for it, and more importantly, is it the right thing? This is a risk that we all face with our search for meaning. Individuals and church alike, that we are like an astronaut floating in space, searching aimlessly in the cold and the dark, that we look and look and don't find it, that we miss it, or perhaps worse, we think we find it but we were looking for entirely the wrong thing to begin with. In order to find our true purpose or meaning, they must match our design. Otherwise, they can render us useless or worse, destroy us. Think of a hammer being used as a screwdriver or a train in a gravel pit. They don't quite work. Um, in Michael Scott fashion, if you drive your Ford Taurus into a lake, it doesn't really work. Um, the water can, in fact, kill it because it's not designed to work that way. So then, where are you looking for meaning? What are you looking for? Here's a rundown one author gives of all of the various ways and pursuits that people try to find meaning in their lives. There are personal pursuits, such as romantic love, family, money, power, achievement, or access to particular social circles, or the emotional dependence of others on you, health, fitness, physical beauty. There are cultural pursuits, such as military power, uh, technology, progress, economic prosperity, family, hard work, duty, moral virtue, individual freedom, self-discovery, personal affluence, fulfillment. I'll add there are also intellectual pursuits, such as education, philosophy, political and social, social ideology, the innate goodness of man, or the absoluteness of reason. Because our purpose informs our actions, in some cases these pursuits are deemed futile. And people pursue something like subjectivism or anarchy, um, nihilism or meaningless. Why bother pursuing something as meaningful when it would restrict your freedom? Um, Aldous Huxley wrote uh, Brave New World, and he wrote this in his book, Ends and Means. And I think it's one of the most astute and honest observations about the purpose of meaninglessness. He says this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons with to yeah to find satisfying reasons for this assumption for myself the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality i objected to the morality because it interfered with my sexual freedom the supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning the christian meaning they insisted of the world there was one admirably simple method of confuting the Christians uh, and justifying the erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning. 
So we can pretend like Huxley that throwing off the shackles of meaning somehow gets us out of this search, uh, but it's clear he was really just pursuing sexual freedom or liberation as a purpose for his life. In a somewhat ironic fact, Huxley actually portrays the main character in the Brave New World, uh, this world of sexual freedom and liberation, uh, who's initially hesitant, eventually succumbs to it, um, not as somebody who's liberated, but suicidal. It is clear that in any case, we are looking for ultimate per, uh, an ultimate treasure that will provide hope, meaning, and fulfillment, safety, peace, happiness, prosperity, and longevity, that which will unify our desires with our design and give us ultimate freedom, a treasure that will neither rust nor destroy, something everlasting. If we look back through history, we see from the ancient study of alchemy um, that the pursuit of meaning was at one time much more literal than it is now. Alchemy, for those of you unfamiliar, was the pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, The Philosopher's Stone was an object or an artifact that would transform base metals into gold. Uh, It would also regard its bearer with health and immortality. Alchemy eventually morphed into something that matched a more modern mindset. um, And as it developed, the stone eventually became conceptualized something more akin to a personality. Uh, than a material object. And as the alchemists increasingly realized the the development of the psyche was more important than mere gold itself. In a sense, the alchemists attempted to conceive of the golden personality, if you will, what a person could be at their full potential um, and how that might come to be. To do so, they conceived of a synthesis of ideas to help explain reality. Um, This entire photo, um, usually referred to as the rebus, Um, is is an example of that. It combines all these ideas. For the sake of today, I'm going to focus on um, what's at the bottom here. There's a a winged globe or a winged orb, and atop of that is a snake or a dragon. Historically, has been how it's been viewed. The winged orb represents to the alchemists uh, what they dubbed the materia prima. Um, This is the primary matter, the most fundamental substance from which everything else emerged. So it precedes creation, if you will. It's similar to, uh, if you've heard the word quintessential, uh, quintessence was the pursuit of the union of the four elements. So what made earth, water, wind, and fire? The primary matter can be understood as both potential and information. It can also be understood as chaos. And not necessarily chaos in the sense of confusion and mayhem and havoc, um, but something more like dark ocean waters teeming with life and beauty, but also risk and danger at once and all of it unknown from above the surface. Thus, to survey this primary matter, those dark waters, and find beauty and treasure and meaning within it, one must submerge themselves in it. And in doing so, take a risk that what could be below is life-threatening and dangerous rather than life-giving, as we had hoped. This risk is what is represented by the snake on top of the orb of chaos. The snake is the beast which protects the valuable materia prima. It is a warning to any seeker that an encounter with chaos itself, the pursuit for significance and meaning, can be fatal and dangerous. For those of you that are big Harry Potter fans, um, J.K. Rowling basically stole everything from alchemy. No, not quite. Um, But she uses a lot of this imagery in her books. The winged orb is the basis for the golden snitch. In fact, it's pretty much the exact same thing. Um, So she developed this idea of the golden snitch in her game Quidditch that she created. Those of you that don't know, the snitch was this random fluctuating flying ball that the seeker would pursue in hopes of attaining and winning the game. 
Uh, it is a, this chaotic object to obtain, but it's of ultimate worth, and that's represented by its 150 points that you score if you obtain it, and it's the fact that it's made of gold. So to do this, though, the seeker puts themselves at great risk. They must be willing to traverse any path. And you see scenes of Harry flying outside of the stadium, or perhaps you're hit by a bludger, the flying balls that try to attack all the wizards, or perhaps you run into another player in the game. Rowling takes these Im- this imagery further in her second book, um, where she actually depicts a basilisk, literally the king snake that resides over the chamber of secrets that is potential and information. The basilisk lures and captures Ginny, which is Virginia, which is the virgin, the maiden representing purity and beauty. And how the, the residents of Hogwarts soon learn that an encounter with this basilisk can leave you petrified, literally. And attempting to subdue it and free the maiden, capture the beauty and treasure, as Harry finds out, can even poison or kill you. The great risk that whoever wants to find and save that life treasure may in fact lose their own. Well, these are just metaphorical examples. Um, I hope they paint a vivid picture of our search for meaning. They allow us to understand the nature of that pursuit, that in search of our purpose and meaning, we can be captured by the wrong thing or get lost in those dark, deep waters. Oftentimes this takes place in what we call an addiction. A genuine interest consumes us. The superficial becomes an idol we serve and worship. And instead of slaying the snake, we become its prisoner. Or worse, we are devoured and killed, if not physically, then spiritually. For example, the improper pursuit of the love of money can imprison us. Despite the affluence of our own culture, many of us are not satisfied and we seek more and more, not realizing we are diving deeper and deeper into those dark waters of the abyss. Some of us become so obsessed with the pursuit that it drowns us. And we witness this with the grave horrors of the misaligned pursuit after the 2008 financial crisis. As a result of the crash, many became prey to the snake over the chaos. The chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive, Sheldon Good, shot himself in the head. French money manager who invested with Bernie Madoff slit his wrists and died. An HSBC bank executive hanged himself and a Bear Stearns executive overdosed and leapt from the top office of his building. One of Daryl's favorite quotes is that the loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and has just let you down. How devastating to obtain what you thought was ultimate, what you thought was going to provide everlasting worth, value, and significance, and then have it all wash away in an instant. How devastating to watch your God die. There is, of course, one story that precedes all of these and perhaps explains all of them. The very, instance of man's, uh, the very first instance of man's search for meaning gone awry. The Garden of Eden was a place of abundant natural beauty teeming with life. Perhaps a jungle brings to mind the setting more clearly. A place of chaos full of life and treasures, but also dangers. In this garden, we have the first maiden, uh, that vivacious beauty, Eve. And Eve, like in the other stories, desires the ultimate treasure, to be like God, to know all of good and evil. This promise was ultimate worth uh, is actually delivered from the lips of the beast of chaos, the snake itself. The man Adam, perhaps blinded by his swelling desire for the woman, that life-giving beauty fails to recognize the dangers and suffers the same fate as Eve. 
From this misguided pursuit, they have broken their very design, forsaken their true purpose, and were banished from the life-giving garden. From their connection with the life-giver and the designer. Out of the garden, into the darkness, left to toil, suffer, and die. So to me, this creates questions more than it does answers. Uh, Outside of the fictional stories, is there anybody that's actually obtained true meaning? Is there a seeker out there who's obtained the golden snitch? Is there someone in possession of the philosopher's stone? Is there someone that has surveyed all of the chaos, all the primary matter, the deep dark waters, and not been consumed? Is there someone who has slayed the dragon and retrieved the treasure? One person thought that the answer was the Logos. Some of the philosophers in ancient Greece and Athens, particularly a group called the Stoics, had conceived of something called the Logos to explain all of life. The Logos was the seminal reason by which all things came into existence, were ordered, and to which they returned. It was a universal divine reason, or literally the mind of God. Logos was like the primary matter that alchemists had pursued. It was that thing that explained and gave meaning to all else. It could provide our true meaning and purpose and explain why we're here, where are we going, explain everything else under the sun. Fortunately, they didn't know what it was. They didn't really know what they were looking for. However, one man came along and said, I know what it is. And out of the deepest, darkest depths burst forth with the answer for meaning and purpose that we have all been looking for. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The good news of the Gospel of John is that the Logos is Jesus. Jesus is that Logos. He's the quintessence, the primary matter, the meaning to life, the light of the world, that thing we've been floating around in space trying to find. It's Jesus. John clarifies that the question of meaning and purpose is not really what are you looking for, it's who. Who are you looking for? It is not some golden object, some abstract concept, some perfect psyche. It's a person. The Logos is flesh and blood, a human living among us. And is Jesus Christ, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So one scholar says, if you want to know your true meaning, if you want to know who the true God is, look long and hard at Jesus. He will be your guide. He will be our light in the darkness of the chaos. And by saying in the beginning, John is hitting, hinting that he is telling us this is a new story. It's a new beginning. It's a new garden story. And in this new beginning is going to be the start of the undoing of the old world. The undoing of those misguided pursuits and death. It's a story of how the snake is killed and we're set free from its grip. It's a story of how chaos is ordered. It's a story of how we get back into the garden. It's a story of the risen sun. This is a story of how light overcame the darkness. At the crucifixion, the death of Christ, darkness had consumed the land. Some of the Gospels record that the sun had actually stopped shining, even though it was midday. The disciples had fled, thinking that the one they worshipped was dead and gone. Peter denied even knowing Christ, fearing the repercussions of being associated with him. 
And just as Jesus had predicted, when the shepherd was struck, the sheep would scatter. There, hanging nailed to the cross, Christ breathed his last and died a criminal's death. He's laid inside the tomb. The stone is rolled in front. It is sealed shut. Absolute darkness. But it is in this chaos and darkness and death that John brings us toward the dawn. This time, not out of, but back into the garden. Not the garden of Eden, but the garden of the tomb. Here's what John says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. They've taken my Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him, she exclaims. Through, through the tears in her eyes and the darkness of the night, she is left lost. She happens to stumble upon someone she thinks is a gardener. The gardener asks her that all-telling question, who are you looking for? Still in her darkness, thinking she was looking for a dead and lifeless body, Mary pleads with the gardener to tell her where he has put the body. Her dead treasure, the body of her dead God. And with utmost care and tenderness of a gardener, the one who she cannot recognize for who he really is, the risen Christ, the true gardener, prunes her with one small word. Mary. Out of her tears, out of the desert and exile and slavery, out of the darkness and the chaos and the death, Christ invites Mary and all of us along with her back into the garden with God. Mary finally sees the light, her Rabboni, the true teacher in God. He wasn't dead. He was the resurrection and the life, the light of the world who overcame darkness and death. And with it, she goes back out into the darkness, carrying this light, exclaiming, I have seen the Lord. As one author puts it succinctly, here he is, the new Adam, the gardener, charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. He has come to uproot the thorns and the thistles and replace them with blossoms and harvests. In the resurrection, Christ has defeated the snake and in doing so defeated death entirely. Christ went down into the darkness, the chaos, the void, and came up victorious. As John is pointing us, the logos, the reason for existence, the quintessence, that primary matter, that golden treasure is Christ. What you were looking for, rather who you were looking for, is the risen son of God. It is only through seeking him and finding him that you will be able to truly see anything else. It is only in him that you will find your worth, your purpose, your meaning, and your life. And I know this is a very roundabout way for me to explain the purpose of the church, but I'm hoping it will provide a lasting impression. The point being that we must come back to the resurrection and see the risen Christ to understand it all. He is the light that will allow us to see in the darkness. Let me close with one story, and then I'll wrap things up. Christopher McCandless was a bright, intelligent young man. Uh, he had lots of aspirations um, was successful. He attended a prestigious university and excelled, but McCandless ended up being drawn to some other things um, and decided to throw off material pursuits and live a nomadic lifestyle of solitude, one where he could live in tune with nature. Perhaps he was drawn in by transcendentalism spoken of by Henry David Thoreau and the other philosophers he read. To gain this treasure, McCandless changed his name to become inconspicuous, 
the, the fullest degree, and moved into the remote wilderness of Alaska, where he believed he could truly be alone and one with nature. However, while McCandless was in the wilderness, that chaos, if you will, he stumbled across something that made him question his pursuit. In his reading, he came across something that was more meaningful and valuable than his original treasure. It was a small statement by a Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, that happiness or joy is only real if it's shared. And obviously being alone, he is unable to share his joy, rendering his original treasure valueless. This causes McCandless to have such a significant change of heart that he actually determines to leave the wilderness and solitude and go back into the world in search of this new treasure. But it was too late. The shining brightness of the spring light had returned and the snow was melting, so much so that the rivers had flooded and McCandless was trapped by those snaking waters. In the darkness and the chaos of the wilderness all alone, McCandless died. His story serves as a stark warning to all of us. Are you really confident that you found meaning in your life and that it's the right one? C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The same is true of the Son of God. I believe he has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. John's gospel gives this clear answer that this is the purpose for all of us, the risen Christ. But he also gives the church a formula to use for its corporate purpose, He says, be like John the Baptist and testify as a witness to the true light. He says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Our entire purpose as a church is to reflect the life-giving light of Christ until we light up the ends of the earth. We're to be that shining city on the hill or a signpost to those lost in the wilderness pointing them back towards the garden, toward the safety of Christ. In some sense, we're the holders of that philosopher's stone. We have the true gold and the true immortality. It is the ultimate act of worship when we reflect Christ, for then we reflect his perfection. The Bible speaks so vividly of this that it says to be clothed in Christ. We should wear his glory each and every day. It is an act of the highest evangelism when we shine Christ's light into the chaos and the darkness of this world and lead those who have become lost along the way or been poisoned by the snake. However, to reflect God's light, we must remember to constantly fix our eyes on the sun, the author and perfecter of our faith, or else we become like the dark side of the moon or a candle under a bowl. Just like Mary, we must proclaim to the entire world that we have seen the risen Lord. And that in him we live and move and have our being. And finally, we must be able to answer that question for all those asking, what am I looking for? I am he, says Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, 
Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.